Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Will you grab this too? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we are a people who are in desperate need of hearing from you this morning. Uh, Lord, in ways that we are not even aware of. So pray that you would be enlivening our minds and our hearts, Lord, and that that would change the way that we live in this, in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we gotta talk about the first few verses of this psalm. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This, this first verse is dripping with desire. Right? That here in this uh, air-conditioned space, it can be hard to, to connect with that on like a sleepy Sunday morning. The intensity of the desire that is in this psalm. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my flesh faints for you. It seems almost adolescent, doesn't it? Like when you were in high school and all of your emotions were like turned up to 10. That's kind of what is happening here. It's this, it's this earnest and eager desire for God that can feel so far from our daily experience of life. It's a desire that is desperate. The kind of desire that we would rather like put in a box and put up on the top shelf of our closet because that kind of desire, that kind of desperation is embarrassing to us. It's, it's impolite, it's distressing, it's disruptive, isn't it? This kind of desire. To say my flesh faints for something. Man, that's to say I, would, I will interrupt whatever is happening in my life to address this desire because it is so strong. It's a disruptive kind of desire. Okay, what this makes me think of uh, if any of you have like been outside at any point in the last three days, like you're aware of how thirsty you are when you come inside, right? It's just so hot. But then turn that up a little bit. Like it takes me back to when I was training for a triathlon. This was like 10 years ago, okay? So way, way back. Uh, and I was doing this, it was when I was in college and it was in the middle of July. We were doing the Music City Triathlon. And so you gotta kind of train in bricks when you train for a triathlon. So you gotta do like chunks of the triathlon together. So this day was going to be our bike run day. 
So we went on a Natchez Trace, like drove several miles, or rode several miles, uh, and I had only brought one water bottle because I was in college and was an idiot. So great, I like drink the water bottle. I'm like, oh, I'm really thirsty. Well, time to go and like do the run. So now we're like running through downtown Nashville. And once we like, we've like made the loop, we've turned around, I'm coming back to my apartment and realize I am suddenly very cold in the middle of this very hot day. And I'm like a substantial ways away from the apartment. Like, this is a problem, right? And my thirst almost like disappeared. I couldn't like think about how thirsty I was, but all I was aware of is how cold I was. And of course, being a college student, I was like, well, I must just need to run a little bit faster, right? Like, I got to get there faster because otherwise I'm going to die here on the sidewalk. I think it would have been better to just stop and walk. Anyway, we get back to the apartment and all I could do was just drink water. Like, I was literally about to faint or die of heat stroke because I was so thirsty. That's the kind of desire that the psalmist is talking about here. I'm so thirsty for God. I'm about to faint because of my desire for God. Are you guys with me this morning? Are you guys awake? Okay, that's like a really, yeah, thank you. That's like a really intense desire, right? And that's the kind of desire that that we're like, that we're waking up to this morning. We've got to ask, what is it that the psalmist sees about God that would make him desire God that much? Listen, this is not about shaming you, okay, and saying you should desire God that much. That's not what we're talking about here. But asking God, what is it that we are missing that we don't experience that kind of desire? And it comes out in verse two, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. The psalmist is saying, I have seen God, and this is what I've seen. I've beheld his power and his glory. And he says this in verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life. And this phrase, steadfast love, is what the whole psalm turns on. So my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as in rich food. It's seeing and experiencing God's steadfast love that turns everything for the psalmist. And that word, steadfast love, it sounds kind of bland, doesn't it? Like, is this really the thing that's going to ignite desire in us, is God's steadfast love? It is one of the most significant words in all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. The word is hesed. And steadfast love is one way to translate it. Another way to translate it would be loyal love or God's covenant love. And guys, God's covenant love changes everything. And what we're going to talk about is the way that that covenant love is connected to God's holiness. Okay, but first we've got to discuss what God's covenant love actually is. So to do that, we've got to go back in the Old Testament, uh, back to the story of Abraham, because the Abrahamic covenant is the foundational covenant uh, of the Bible. It kind of is what sets in motion and clarifies for us all of these other covenants, all of these other promises that God makes. And here's the covenant that God makes with Abraham, the promise that God makes to Abraham. God said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That those are the promises that God makes to Abraham. He says, leave where you are, come into this new place and I'm gonna give you a land. I'm gonna give you a name. I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna bless you and through that blessing I'm gonna bless the world. Those are the promises that God made to Abraham. But Abraham kind of keeps living life and his life gets really hard 
a lot of weird things happen, like he tells Pharaoh that his wife is his sister and all kinds of weird stuff, okay? And so Abraham, in all that time, he starts to doubt God's promises. Is this stuff really going to come true? He's like, I'm old. My wife is really old. We don't have any kids. How is this going to happen? So he's asking these questions to God. And so in Genesis 15, just a few chapters later, God shows back up and he makes this covenant, he cuts this covenant, a relational contract with Abraham. Okay, you've got to stick with me here because the, the cultural context for a covenant is really important. A covenant was something that was very common in the ancient Near East in, in the time of Abraham. And the way these covenants worked is it was usually between a greater king and a lesser king. Like a king would come in and he would conquer a land and then he would make the lesser king subject to him. And, and to solidify that relationship, they would make a covenant. And there were these set of promises. The king would say, okay, here's how, here's how this is going to go. I'm, I'm this great and mighty king, la, la, la. Here's how amazing I am. And because of that, you have to obey me. You have to pay taxes to me. You have to supply troops for the army. And here's what I'm going to do for you. If you do those things, then I will protect you. I'll defend you. When an enemy comes against you, I'll kind of put my arms around you. I'll be there for you. It's this set of, it's this set of kind of if-then statements. And then there's, then there's a series of curses usually. So the greater king is saying to the lesser king, and if you fail to do this, we'll cut off your arms and send them around. And it's all this kind of horrible stuff, like we'll hit you with spikes and it's bad. All these curses that come if you violate the covenant. And then there would be this ceremony that would kind of solidify, that would mark, that would seal the covenant. And what they would do is they would take these animals and they would cut them in half. Ugh. And they would lay them out in a line, okay? And then the parties to the covenant, the people who are making the contract, would pass through this, this gauntlet of dead animals. It's like those AYSO, like the soccer, you know, pyramids that you would make when you were a little kid, except it was dead animals on either side. Gross, okay? So they would walk through them, and what they were symbolizing, what they were saying when they walked through this line is, let, let what has happened to these animals be done to me if I break the covenant. Let me be undone. Let me be split apart if, if I break the covenant that I am promising to you. If I fail to do my part. So in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fulfill my part of the covenant. You don't need to worry about it. And so what Abraham does is he sets up these animals. He makes the animal gauntlet, okay? And then uh, there's this deep and dreadful darkness, is what the scripture says, that falls on Abraham. It's almost like he goes into a dream. And it's this dream that's, that's incredibly vivid and intense. And there is this smoking pot and this blazing torch that pass through the animals, And I know you're all thinking, that's amazing. No, he's like, what is going on here, okay? Abraham is having a theophany. He's having a vision of God. That's how God is picturing himself to Abraham is this, this glowing torch, which, uh, spoiler alert, is how God leads the people of then Israel out of Egypt, right? Is in this flaming pillar. So God passes through the animals, but Abraham does not pass through them. And that is so significant because what God is saying is, I am gonna keep this covenant God is saying, it's all on me. I will keep both sides of the covenant and may what happened to these animals be done to me if I fail to carry it forward. This is mind-blowing. 
this totally undermines any other concept of religion. It's what sets this covenant, this, this covenant love apart from any other God is that God is saying, I know that my people are going to be unable to live up to their end of the covenant. He's saying, I know that they will be unfaithful. He knows that we will be unfaithful. And what God is saying is, I will keep both sides of this. I'll do what they can't do. That God is so dedicated to blessing Abraham and blessing the world through Abraham that none of Abraham's disobedience is gonna get in the way of God's desire to bless. Okay, that is God's covenant love. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That God's covenant love, the steadfast love, it is a manifestation of God's power and glory. Right? Sometimes we think about God's greatness and his love as separate things. God is great and he is also loving. No, God's power, his greatness, his glory is shown through his covenant love. That is the way he has chosen to show himself out to the world is through this promise-keeping love, this love that is faithful in the midst and in the face of unfaithfulness. And it's that love that makes God holy. So there's this story in Isaiah 6 doing a lot of Old Testament work today, okay? But it's very important. So in Isaiah 6, he, Isaiah is this prophet, and he comes into the temple of God, just like we're here, but he has this vision while he's here. Just imagine this. You're like here for a normal Sunday morning, but all of a sudden, you get this, this crazy vision. And the temple, it, it gets filled with smoke, and Isaiah has this sense of, I am encountering the living God. And Isaiah's response to that is, I'm undone. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips that Isaiah is saying, I am recognizing how unfaithful I have been to this God who is so majestic, who is so powerful, who is so above me in glory. And then in this moment where Isaiah is waiting to come undone, right, like the consequence of what would happen if you broke the covenant, this passing through the animals, this being undone, as he is waiting for that to come upon him, an angel flies to his lips and he touches them with a burning coal and he says, your sin has been atoned for it's a picture of God's covenant love, of God saying to Isaiah, I am doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm taking away your sin. I am being faithful in the midst of your unfaithfulness. And it's in that vision that God is called for the first time in scripture, holy, holy, holy. It's God's covenant love that reveals his holiness to the world. Our problem is not, we love holiness. We just so often forget that God is holy, right? Because when we see that kind of faithfulness in action anywhere in our culture, we celebrate it, don't we? When you see that kind of faithfulness in the midst of unfaithfulness anywhere around you, that what you're gonna do is you're gonna celebrate it. Like I think of this, this, this story that I encountered recently, uh, of a man who uh, was diagnosed, who, a man who had a stroke. He was a little bit older in life. He had this stroke, and when he had the stroke, uh, his wife left him, and he was alone. So he had his son caring for him, and then into the picture came his ex-wife. And after his, after his second wife left, that first wife came back into the picture and took care of him. 
that she, along with her son, took him to all of his doctor's appointments and was there with her son when her previous husband received his terminal diagnosis. That she was sitting there with him, holding him, crying with him, laughing with him, celebrating the life that he had lived. That's incredible faithfulness. That's a faithfulness that we would all celebrate, right? That's the kind of love that we desire in our lives is that the friends, the friends that we have, the people that we're close to, that are, that are partners, that, that when things get hard, what if they said to us, you know, I know I really love you. I'm all for you. I just want you to know, though, that if things get really hard, I'm planning to leave. I just need you to know that now, right? If it gets hard, you do, please don't count on me. No, we would say that's ridiculous, Right? No, what we desire, what we yearn for is covenant love, the kind of love that would say, here in this moment of happiness, I'm making a promise that even when things get hard, I'm gonna be there for you and I'm never gonna leave you. We already love holiness. And we see it in the things that even we celebrate in our culture, like that great secular saint, Ted Lasso. I was at a coffee shop in Memphis this last week and they have these candles of saint, you know, of like, but they put celebrities on the saint candles, you know what I'm talking about? And of course, Ted was one of them. What is it that people love about Ted so much? There's this woman, Tish Warren, who writes for the New York Times. She says this. She says, Lasso's great humility again and again makes him a wellspring of transformation and redemption. He disarms people. In the main arc of the, of the series' first season, Rebecca, who's his boss, goes from trying to use and humiliate Ted in order to destroy her team, which is seeking vengeance against her philandering ex-husband, whose only true love is the club, to embracing him as a loyal friend. Right? So there's this woman who has brought this, this uh, very hilarious uh, football coach over to England to, to head up her in English soccer club. And her whole goal in doing it is to destroy the club. That Ted is just a pawn in her game. And yet what she encounters over and over again is Ted's great humility, his silliness. Really what she encounters is his kindness. And, and this is back to what Tish says. In an emotional season climax, if you have not seen it, I'm sorry, this is a spoiler, but it's been out for a while, okay? In an emotional season climax, Rebecca reveals her secret plan to Ted, confessing, I've sabotaged you every chance I had. She tearfully apologizes and Ted immediately forgives her. And when you watch that show, the moment is so poignant. And then afterwards, she, free, she loses it because she cannot understand why someone would forgive her. And this is what he does the next day. And this is the part that really blows me away, okay? Ted Lasso, the secular saint, is that after this whole blow up, after all this, she, you know, she confesses, he forgives her. What he does the, in the, the very next day is he brings her this box of biscuits. And what you learn in the show is that these biscuits were the way he was, he was befriending her. Every day he would bring her these cookies and she said she didn't want them but he'd bring them anyway and she loved them but she didn't let him know. And you find out he's been baking these every morning for his boss. And after all of this comes out, all of the ways that she has tried to sabotage him comes out that that night he goes and he makes these biscuits and he brings them to her the same way the next morning. That's faithfulness in the midst of unfaithfulness, Right? That's, it's a picture, it's an, stay with me, okay, it's an echo of covenant love. Yeah, that's not the gospel, but it's a picture of it, it's a taste of it, and there are all kinds of ways in the show it gets distorted and mixed with all kinds of other things, yes, but, but what, we, what we're saying is that you cannot get away from covenant love. It's what we are always looking for and celebrating, it's what we desire in our lives. 
And that what we have forgotten is that that is our God's disposition toward us. It's so easy for us to do as Christians, isn't it? To forget God's covenant love toward us. Like were any of you in youth group growing up? I just want to see if this is going to connect with anybody. Can I see a few hands? Okay. Now, I said this last week, and I'm more and more convinced that it's true, that here in East Nashville, we live uh, in a world where everyone, or almost everyone, has had some exposure to Christianity at some point in their lives. I mean, to some extent, most of the people around us are trying to figure out what to do with that. Do I give it away wholesale? Do I keep the whole thing? What parts of it do I deconstruct? How do I interact with this thing that I grew up in? And part of the angst that we experience uh, with, this, with this faith that we've grown up with is uh, the, the warping of God's holiness. And there are all kinds of people we might want to blame for that, but let's just acknowledge that's just a part of the human condition is that we have such a hard time believing that God's covenant love can be true that we, we start to immediately uh, shape it and, and, and make it into something else. And often what it becomes in our lives is legalism. This idea that because of what God has done for me, now I really need to get busy and start paying God back. And here's a youth group connection, okay? It's from this song by a band called Reliant K. Any of you know them? Yes? And, it's so, this, and this is why I'm using it. It's because the, the, it's so subtle the way it creeps in, even in this song called Getting Into You, which you, if you've listened to them, you may or may not know. This is the bridge, so the most emotional part of the song, okay? I've been a liar, and I'll never amount to the kind of person you deserve to worship you. You say you will not dwell on what I did, but rather what I do. You say, I love you, and that's what you were getting yourself into. Did you hear it in there? That very subtle shift? You say that you will not dwell on what I did, but rather what I do. Oh, it just snuck in. Right? It just snuck in there. That God is saying, yeah, 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 okay? I know that I love you, that you love me, great. But, but I'm not going to pay attention to what you've done, but I am going to pay attention to what you do moving forward. So get it together. Because I'm holy. And that when that becomes our idea of God, of course we're going to hate his holiness. Of course obedience to us is going to feel like a burden that weighs us down. Of course that's a God that we're going to deconstruct because that is not a love that we're interested in. Of course. Now the issue is not that we don't love holiness. The issue is that we have ceased thinking about God as holy. But our God is holy. His covenant love is real. And the place that we see that illustrated for us most clearly is in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Because here's what Jesus did. There's this tension in the covenant, in this idea of of God's covenant love, of God saying, I'm gonna hold up both ends of this covenant. And all throughout scripture, we're left wondering, how is God gonna do this? Well, this is how God does it. He comes as a person. He puts on flesh and he, as a man, fulfills the covenant. He keeps the covenant that we could not keep. He is perfectly loyal to it. He doesn't just check off every box, but he, he fills it up to its full measure. But he does more than that. 
But not only does he fill up the covenant to its full measure, right? Not only does he do what we could not do, is he actually then takes on himself uh, the consequences for us being disloyal. That he, in essence, walks through those split animals. That all of the wrath that we deserve because of, of our disloyalty, all of the curses that would come upon us because of our violation of the covenant, they fell upon him instead. And what we are given, the theological word for it is imputed, what we are given is Christ's righteousness. That now, before God, what is true about you because of what Jesus has done for you is that when God looks at you, he sees you as holy. You have been made holy. That's what Hebrews 10.10 says. Let me read it for you. And by that, we will have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That Jesus Christ, by offering himself up as our sacrifice, by suffering in our place, he makes us holy. So you see, that throws out any idea of legalism in our relationship with God. There is nothing that you can do to earn any more of God's favor because you already have it because God already sees you as holy. So yeah, we are called into participating in God's holiness, but that's not to get something we don't already have. It's living out of what is now true about us. So God says, be holy like I am holy. What he's saying is come and live in this covenant love that has saved you, that has brought you to me. Come bathe in it. Come let that covenant love shape and define your life. And that gives us a totally new relationship with, with so many things. And I'm just going to pick one of them, okay? It changes the way that we pray. But what we get to say now is, uh, hallowed be your name. God, proclaim your holiness to the world. That because we are people who have received and experienced God's covenant love, that, that we know how good that covenant love is and what we are begging is, God, would you make that known across the world, would you broadcast your covenant love? When you pray, hallowed be thy name, if, if we want to break that down and, and get it into the knit and grit of our own lives, it is you praying to God, God, in the places in my own life that are filled with shame, God, in the places of deep trauma in my life, would you show me your covenant love? in the places in my own story that I am working so hard and so desperately to hide from myself and to hide from everyone else because when I see it, I fall apart. In that place in my life, God, would you pour your covenant love right there? Would you heal me with that covenant love right there? Because here's what's true. Those places in our life that we feel the most pulverized, shattered into tiny pieces, that that is ground zero for God's beautiful, redemptive work in your story. But that is exactly the place he desires to shower you with love and to do something beautiful to show you his holiness. But it's not that the covenant love, it does more than just bring you to Christ. It's the covenant love that continues to change us as we walk with Jesus. So when we pray, God, hallowed be thy name, we're saying, God, would you come and continue to show that covenant love to me in the places that I'm resisting it? 
When we pray, God, hallowed be thy name, we're saying in the lives of the people around us, in the shattered and the broken relationships that we have been a part of breaking, God, would your holiness show up? Would you do what we can't do? Would you bring healing and restoration and beauty? That's what we're praying when we say, God, hallowed be thy name. We're saying there is a world out there that has been so broken and devastated by sin, and we're saying, God, would you make your name holy out in the world? Would you declare it? Would you, through your covenant love, bring healing and grace and mercy to those places? When we pray, God, hallowed be thy name, we become co-creators with God in the beautiful and holy work he is doing out in the world. God, hallowed be thy name. We're having our hearts conditioned. We're teaching ourselves. We're reminding ourselves of the beauty of God's holiness. And we're stepping out then to participate in that holiness when we see opportunities to do it around us. That each moment that we are given and the interactions that we have, especially with each other, now that they are moments that we get to stop and ask the Lord, Lord, what is the holiness, what is the beauty you are asking me to participate here with this other person? How do I bring your holiness into this moment, into this interaction, into this part of my job? God, hallowed be thy name. I want to see your name be made great. I want to see your holiness declared. Lord, open my eyes and show me how to pick up the paintbrush and be a part of it with you. And that fires our imaginations in a totally new way. that it starts to expand the possibilities of what could happen in our world, in our lives, and in our relationships. It's this imagination that starts us to see that, that it's this prayer that starts our imaginations and sets them on fire. There's this uh, Japanese aesthetic philosopher whose name I'm going to try to pronounce. Tamanabu, anyway, it's a Japanese aesthetic philosopher, okay? And he's quoted in this book called Silence and Beauty, and he says this. He says, in comparing beauty and goodness, I consider beauty to be the more transcendent of the two. The ideogram of goodness, like the Japanese character for goodness, is made up of two ideograms, one of a sacrificial sheep on top of an ideogram of a box. So the symbol is a sheep on top of a box. To be good, it's only necessary to fulfill predetermined sacrifice determined by society. Paying taxes, participating in traditions, rituals, and such. The ideogram of righteousness is made up of the ideograms of sacrificial sheep on top of the ideogram of self. It means to carry the sacrifices yourself. But the ideogram of beauty is made up of the sacrificial sheep on top of the ideogram for great, which means greater sheep. It connotes a greater sacrifice, a sacrifice that cannot be boxed in by rituals or self. This greater sacrifice may require sacrifice of one's own life to save the life of others. And this sacrifice is not enforced by rules, nor is it predetermined, but originates from self-initiative, a willing sacrifice. That is what is truly beautiful. Friends, is that not the gospel? Is that not the covenant love of Jesus displayed? 
Oh, and it is beautiful. And as we come to see it as beautiful, we come to see ourselves differently. To see even the places of our great shame and trauma, pain and sin as ground zero for God's beautiful work in our lives. Work that we get to participate in as we pray, God, hallowed be thy name. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to wake our hearts up uh, to the beauty of your covenant love for us or the beauty of your holiness. Lord, even as we worship you, would you clear away all of the hurdles in our hearts that tell us that uh, that you are holding out or that you are waiting for us to be good enough to come to you, Lord, would you clear those things away and would you meet us uh, in the ground zero of our hearts, Lord, with your covenant love, uh, would you capture us by your beauty even this morning? Amen.